and again, uh, happy Easter. And um, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And while you're doing that, thank you, while you're doing that, um, I wanted to share with you this morning um, something that I came across this week. And uh, I think being removed by the events of the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord by 2,000 years sometimes incapacitates us from having perspective. So for the sake of perspective, um, I just wanted to share with you a video that I came across this week. If you could play that video, just turn the lights down. This is what they felt like when it happened. And today, it's how we should feel too. Because what it meant for them, it means for us. Thanks. Anyways, it was was a powerful thing to watch something that put it in perspective if we were really there, and uh, to see the jubilation and the feelings of excitement, of hope being realized. And that's what this morning is about. Easter morning is about the hope that Jesus is who he says he was, and that the power over death uh, and the coming of the kingdom was true. He was the Messiah, and he was who he said he was. First uh, Corinthians chapter 15, if you turn in your Bibles, and I had thought I would read through uh, the chapter, but there is 58 verses in chapter 15, and I read through it yesterday and timed it, and it would have take about 10 minutes. So, um, But if you just look over... Uh, the chapter in your Bibles, it might have some headings that say something like the resurrection of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of the body, mystery, and victory. That's what it says in my Bible. And it's essentially the single longest treatment in all of Scripture about the topic of Christ's resurrection and what it means for us as Christians um, so just some, some of the highlights I want to read. 
In verse 2, Paul says, the preaching of the gospel saves. He says that Christ's death, burial, and resurrection is of first importance. That's verse 3. And that the risen Jesus appeared to over 500 people. He makes that statement uh, as evidence that the faith and confidence that people have is not imaginary, that Jesus actually appeared to multitudes of people. He goes on to say in verse 6 that if Christ is not raised, then we're dead in our sins, and there is no resurrection. He essentially says that life is pretty much pointless in verse 19 if Christ is not risen from the dead. He says that the resurrection is a guarantee that death also one day will be no more. Verse 26. And then he says that Christ's glorified body ensures that one day we too will receive the kind of bodies that can live in eternity. Verse 38. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son to live a perfect life on our behalf, a perfect life of obedience to your law. And as a perfect sacrifice going to the cross, bearing the sins of all, Jesus became sin, even though he knew no sin, that we, sinners, might become the righteousness of God. And that, Lord, he suffered for us, we thank you. For that fact, we thank you that Christ suffered the penalty of sin which was the just wrath of a holy God in our place. And not only that, but that he died and rose again. And this morning, O God, open our hearts with the hope and reality and power of the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. That it would not simply be an event from 2,000 years ago that that we vaguely understand, but that we would grasp it, that we would perceive it, that we would feel it and know it and understand its importance for us, for the world, and for the universe. In your son's name we pray, amen. There's an Instagram account that I follow called All Abandon. Um, And it's a collection of glorious ruins from across the globe Um, of castles and temples and mansions and shipyards and railroad tracks um, and amusement parks erected by the genius and ingenuity of labor, but now in disrepair. All abandoned. Once these beautiful products signified human achievement and labor. Um... But now they're falling apart, weathered by time and weakened by nature. A picture of a set of train tracks going through the woods that carried locomotives saddled with the products of industry to some important location now covered in rust, overgrown with weeds, its destination unknown. An image of a massive sea-faring vessel which traveled across oceans, bringing one continent's goods to another hemisphere, 
now sunken in a watery grave, haunted by an unknown fate. A marvel of engineering, now a rotten scrap of steel on some distant shore. A photo of a beautiful Victorian mansion of some prominent family, once bustling with servants and maids, now empty and falling apart. A once glorious structure, now whimpers as it struggles to stay erect under the pressure of time and gravity. These images whisper to me, I was once great. I was once powerful. I was once important, useful, beautiful, productive. But these images also say something else. They say that whatever the legacy the builders of these structures had hoped for, was short-lived. Their fame now fades into obscurity. So much labor in vain. And it seems like a metaphor for our life, right? We labor, we work 60, 70 years, toiling and struggling, and everything we've worked so hard to do is all gone the moment we breathe our last breath. Or is it? This really long chapter on resurrection, Paul seems to be arguing for just the opposite way of understanding our lives in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, with all of its 58 verses, contains the longest single argument in Paul's writings on the resurrection of Jesus. And in it, he explores the proofs, importance, theology, and application of Christ rising from the grave. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. You are still in your sins. Christ has not been risen. He says that the resurrection is actually the power behind baptism. He says that the resurrection is the reversal and undoing of Adam's fall and its results. Humans bear the marred image of of Adam, but now in Jesus, because of the resurrection, we bear the image of the truly human being, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who bears the radiance and glory of God. The resurrection announces the renewal of of creation. Paul says that the certainty of the resurrection is what guarantees that the grave is not our final home. That's a comforting thought for any of us who have lost loved ones, parents, spouse, siblings, children. And he says this toward the end. He says that resurrection breaks the power of sin in death. And he says these words, O death, where is thy victory? O grave, where is thy sting? This chapter is intended to be an exposition of the renewal of creation and the renewal of humankind at its focal point. And he ends this really long chapter by saying something that actually seems a little weird on an exposition about resurrection. Here's what he says in verse 58. He says, Therefore, be steadfast, 
immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Why does he say that at the end of a chapter on resurrection? Be steadfast, therefore, and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, inasmuch as you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. He could have just said, therefore, keep your chin up, keep a stiff upper lip, because one day this nasty old life will be over, and you're going to get a new body and go to a place of eternal bliss, which is true. But that's not what he says. Paul is getting at the mission of the church in the world. Our sermon this morning is titled, Resurrection and the Mission of the Church. And the point he's trying to make is that mission is not just for missionaries. What we're laboring at and what we're working at is empowered by the resurrection of Jesus Christ because when Jesus rose from the grave, God launched something new. New creation. And the idea is we're all on mission. Mission is not just for the missionaries. See, the church is an organization that... Um, doesn't simply exist for itself, and if we've got some money left over, we'll send missionaries out to do the work of the kingdom. The church itself is God's mission to the world. In two and a half centuries after the resurrection, what 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 began as a ragtag gang of nobodies from the civilizational backwater of the Roman Empire, had so transformed the Mediterranean world that the most powerful man in the world, the Roman Emperor, Constantine, within three centuries, had joined the winning side. That couldn't have happened unless Christians first believed that God launched something when Jesus came out of the grave. And I guess what I'm challenging is the idea that we have that we only think about resurrection in terms of what happens to us. It's this guarantee of what happens to us after we die. There's like a warm feeling in us that when we die, we'll be raised again. Resurrection, got it. Okay, next subject. And that's kind of how we interact with the idea of the resurrection and Easter Sunday. But it's more than that. It's not any less, but it's more than that. Our salvation is heavenly, but it's grounded in this world and its activity. And that's why Paul says, your labors are not in vain. Otherwise, he could have just ignored the subject or said, doesn't matter what you do, as long as you have faith. But he he includes, he wraps up this huge chapter talking about our labors in the Lord. What we do and what we do for the kingdom. I mean, think about how this worldly, Jesus' statement in Matthew 25 and beginning in 34, his statements here in this passage, Jesus declares that our treatment of the poor, needy, hungry, and oppressed is directly connected to our treatment of him. What a bizarre statement. Jesus is essentially saying that the way you treat the most vulnerable people in the world is the way you're treating me. 
And there's this sense that we come face to face with Jesus when we're demonstrating God's love to the most vulnerable people in the world. And when the church does this, its mercy and ministry is on display. Heaven and earth overlap and interlock in these actions where the church embodies Jesus' own ethic towards the world. Heaven and earth interlock and overlap. And during those moments when the church is being about God's business, the veil between heaven and earth becomes so transparent that you can almost see right into the next age. When people see what it means to live reflecting the image and glory of God, which is essentially what the new heavens and new earth is all about, new creation, there's this vision of, is that what heaven's going to be like? Where no one is left behind? Where no one is neglected? Where there are no more tears? There is no more hunger? There is no more pain? And this is what Paul is getting at. The resurrection is the announcement that the future age where the earth is filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, Isaiah 11 and 9, has broken into the present. The resurrection essentially announces that the future age has broken into the present. And one day the world will be filled with God's grandeur, but in the church, that future glory and grandeur is on display, or it's supposed to be. The church is supposed to display the new creation. The new creation is not fully here yet, obviously. But the church is supposed to give the world a glimpse of what new creation looks like. The glory and the grandeur of God is supposed to be on display to the world in the church, in its acts, in its ministry, and in what we do in our labors. And this is the takeaway from it all. Paul is essentially saying, what we do in the present matters. Have you ever had that feeling that life was pointless? Yes, you know deep down that you belong to God, you're a child of God, you love the Lord, God's got a plan for your life, all of those things. But kind of the, the stress and just the, you know, the, 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 uh, just the mundane feeling you get from, from just, you know, working and doing everything you do every day, you can kind of like wash the dishes and glazing out of the window thinking, what is this all for? And that happens to us, and we know who runs it all. We know that God is in control, and we can still feel that way. And Paul is challenging that. He's encouraging us by saying the resurrection says what you do here matters. And so that means that there's a sort of sacramental quality about living in the world because we worship God with our lives and testify to the resurrection with our labors. We worship God with our lives. We testify to the resurrection with our labors and our labors now, here's the real kicker, our labors are contributing to the kingdom to come. How exactly? We're not sure. But Paul says this statement, your labor in the Lord 
is not in vain. What we're doing here is not completely cut off from the life to come. In fact, I think what Paul is saying is, and many of us, maybe kind of in this modern age, we think of our Christian lives as we live a life. When we die, that life is over, and we live a brand new life, not connected with the old life. Once the resurrection happens, we rise from the grave, we receive new bodies, all of these things. And Paul is not saying that. What he's saying is, it is a continuation of the life you now live. Transformed, for sure. In a new mode, absolutely. But it is, in many ways, a continuation of this life you're living right now. In some way. Some significant, powerful way. And because of that, what you're doing, the life you're living, with all of its struggles, all of its challenges, all of its heartache, and your faithfulness through that heartache, and the tears that you cry, and the prayers that you pray when you feel that God doesn't hear you, but you persevere anyway because faith is bubbling in you and holding on, and you're persevering, and you're hanging on because you know that God is in control of all things, even though your emotions sometimes tell you differently. And Paul is saying, it matters. It counts. There's nothing worse than a feeling of futility. You know, that what you're doing doesn't matter. The church is called to display the living presence of Jesus in the world. I mean, James in 127, he says, you know, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Personal moral righteousness social action linked together. And the church has not always been good at, at this balance. Sometimes we either, uh, uh, we either, either kind of err towards one side or the other. It's all about personal moral righteousness, holy living, right? Some, some would call that, you know, the more conservative side, right? It's all about being holy, and that's good. But there's a neglect, there can be a neglect of social action, then there was, you know, what some people call like the social gospel, which is a care for the oppressed and the poor, but they've tended not to care much about personal moral righteousness. And in a desire to kind of love and care for everybody, they've kind of ignored, right, the ethical, the personal moral side. And right here, there's this link together. That what it means to be the church on mission to the world, what it means to display the living presence of Jesus to our world means that this balance is held together. That we live lives that reflect Christ's own character, personal moral righteousness, a holiness, if you will. And we also deeply love and care for our world in a way that gets us involved laboring for those in need and concerned with the most vulnerable people in our culture. And we've not been so good at that always as the church. Charles Spurgeon, the great English Baptist preacher, and his wife, um, according to a story in Chaplin Magazine, they would sell but refuse to give away um, the eggs their chickens laid. Um, even close relatives were told, you know, you can have them if you pay for them. As a result, some people labeled the Spurgeons greedy and grasping. 
They accepted criticisms without ever defending themselves. And only after Mrs. Spurgeon died was the story fully revealed that all the profits and the sale of eggs went to support two elderly widows. Because the Spurgeons were unwilling to let their, you know, their right hand know what their left hand was doing, Matthew 6 and 3, they endured the attacks in silence. I mean, what's really interesting is the very next verse after chapter 15 and verse 58 ends, the very next verse, 1 Corinthians 16 and 1, essentially says, so get the cash ready. That's what essentially what the very next verse Paul goes into is he talks about taking up a collection of the saints offering. He says, so make sure you have the cash ready because we're going to do kingdom work here. Right? I mean, this is why we pay our tithes and, right? Because being agents of God's kingdom means that we witness in word and deed. And deeds require resources. We're talking about resurrection and the mission of the church. You know, we don't believe in the modern adage in some circles of the church, you know, what's the point of it all anyway? It's all going to burn. That's not the image we get here from this passage, and that's not the vision we get from Paul, who says your labors are not in vain because the kingdom inaugurated by the resurrection of Jesus from the grave means what we do here matters. We ought to care about mission. One of my favorite passages, if not my favorite passage, is Revelation 11 and 15. That the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. The resurrection launched something new. And the gospel message is this. This is what we proclaim when we believe the resurrection and when we behave in a way that seeks to display the glory of God. We're saying, and this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is Lord and that at his name every knee shall bow. There is a present and a future component to that statement. And we live in between that is and shall. And our calling is to declare that the first fact anticipates the second. The first fact that Jesus is Lord means that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. There is a future reality and then there's a present reality and then the future is breaking into the present And we can see that vision of the future. And this proclamation summons men and women to faith and repentance. But also action to labor for God's purposes in the world. Which is somewhat shrouded in mystery, right? I mean, now we look through a glass darkly. But then face to face. We're not exactly sure how it's all going to pan out. We're not exactly positive how God is going to fix this world, but we know that it's begun in the ministry and resurrection of Jesus, who is Lord, the true ruler of the world. Our efforts contribute to the kingdom. How? We're not exactly sure. 
but our labors mean something and they're not in vain. And because of this, you are to remain steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Steadfast and immovable because we're living in the overlap between heaven and earth right now. I think of the great cathedrals of Europe, and if you know some of the stories, um, some of them took over a hundred years to build, these great, beautiful, grand cathedrals of Europe. And these were not people who necessarily believed that they weren't going to have the time. They began a project, and what's interesting is the stonemason was told to cut his stone a certain way. And he wasn't exactly sure how his stones would fit into the overall structure. In fact, he may have not even lived to see the building completed and the fruits of his labor. But he worked all the more. He toiled nonetheless because he believed and he knew that what he was doing was part of something grandiose. That's what kingdom is. It's grandiose. It's bigger than you. It's hard because we have a very short, you know, we have a very short, you know, very short vision. We see right in front of us or just a little bit down the road, but we don't have, you know, God's perspective of this bird's eye view of history and the ages. But Paul is encouraging us saying, just because you don't have that vision, don't be discouraged. What you're doing matters what you're laboring for counts. This is why we labor, why we work. And this is why Paul in Galatians 6 and 9 says this, let us not grow weary in well-doing, in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we don't give up. Because of the resurrection, new creation has broken into this world. The power of sin, which is death, reigned since Adam, but it's been displaced by a new ruler, Jesus, and a new kingdom, the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, most of us probably didn't come in to this building expecting to hear a a sermon about the mission of the church. Maybe we expected to hear about 27 proofs for the resurrection of Jesus or um, the emotional roller coaster of the early apostles and disciples waiting for Jesus to come out of the grave or maybe the story of Mary Magdalene and, and those who were the first to witness the empty tomb. But Lord, the resurrection, we know, means something for us right here and right now. That something new was launched when Jesus rose from the dead. Lord, help us to grab a hold of that power. Lord, that new creation has been revealed and introduced into this current age. That the present Because of the resurrection, the future is breaking into the present. Help us, Lord God, to be encouraged that our labors are not in vain and that what we do matters. 
And as we leave this place and as we go about our business and go back to work tomorrow and go about our lives and our families, our jobs at school, that we would realize that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. Help us to be steadfast, help us to be immovable, and help us to always abound in the work of the Lord. In your son's name, amen. As the ushers come forward.